his ministry in Isaiah 11, when he says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah then describes the effects of the work of the Spirit in the Messiah. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf, because of this king's rule, it seems, you'll have effects in the kingdom. The Holy Spirit's on the king, the king has character and certain actions, and then because the king is ruling, you have effects on nature. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play at the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day... The nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for his peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. The king's empowerment in the person of the Holy Spirit, the effect of the king on nature, the perfect environment of the coming kingdom with its political effects of the nations streaming to Jerusalem. The wisdom of this world and the cleverness of the age can contemplate utopia in various forms, expecting that the human spirit will be able to solve its own ills. If only we could rearrange the landscape, the economic furniture, redistribute the possessions or something. But it's going to take a supernatural empowerment that in Isaiah 11 begins with the Holy Spirit and the Messiah. Beloved, you have the Holy Spirit now, and we are consistently commanded in the Scriptures to be the product in our characters, our attitudes, in our day-by-day, moment-by-moment lives, the product of the work of the Spirit in us. We see the effects in Isaiah 11 of what it'll be like for the Spirit to rule through the Son in the coming kingdom, to empower the Messiah. And now, uh, what will it be like in the time in which we live, for the Spirit to work in us. I always afford you a moment of silent prayer because personal sin grieves the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4, verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We're commanded. We're also commanded not to quench the Spirit, to stop the work that He wants to do through His Word in 1 Thessalonians 5. And the problem, uh, the besetting issue is personal sin. So I always give you a moment for silent prayer. Keep short accounts with the Lord. Let's pray.
Our Father, we praise you for the indwelling spirit who abides in our hearts to bring forth the character of your Son through us day by day, who fills us with your word so that we say what we should say and think what we should think, who brings honor and glory to you through us and makes our lives of consistent value as he empowers us to make decisions and carry out those decisions and our actions to please you. Bless your time, the time we, we have give, back, give back to you tonight, that you would teach us to know you and to serve you. As we consider the filling of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, I'd like to pause what we're doing in Isaiah and look at the concept of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. A topic that is, I've, I've often said that every message from this pulpit is about the grace of God. And every message from this pulpit, in a sense, is empowered and must be empowered if it's useful to God and is uh, to be about the work of the Spirit in us, the filling ministry of the Spirit. And it's a topic that is largely misunderstood in the body of Christ, but central to everything we do. And how can it be that we don't know what it is or how it works, and yet it's um, central to everything we do? And the reason is because the enemy is... Uh, is skilled at deceiving the nations and he gets at us with bad ideas. And it turns out in 1 Corinthians, if you watch closely, they're using the gift of languages in a wrong way. You can use spiritual gifts in a wrong way. You can use them in a way that doesn't edify. I think you can turn on Christian TV and see preachers doing this all the time. They're gifted communicators, but they shouldn't be saying false doctrine. And a lot of times they are. And they're telling you to get rich if you're a Christian if you really, really believe and you really, really want it, and they, 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 they grab the secret, <laughs> the, the, they grab this idea that if, the, if you really want it bad enough, you write it down enough times, the universe aligns. But then they say, well, but, it, but God, if you tell God to do it, then he has to do it. And I call it Christianized um, pagan presumption. And um, you see that on Christian TV all the time. And they seem very compelling. They're very powerful speakers. They're gifted communicators. They're Ephesians 4.11, gifted but they're using it in a wrong way. You can use the gifts of God in a wrong way. And, and so this is why we don't understand the filling of the Spirit. And it's challenging material. And I want to talk about it a little bit. In, in our study in Isaiah, we're in this chunk of Isaiah 33, where it says, Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? That's Isaiah 33, verse 14. Who can, uh, among us can live with continual burning? And this question is because of what he says in verse 12. We left off last time. The peoples will be burned to lime like cut thorns which are burned in the fire. That there is a, a, a judgment coming that is, is a burning fire of, of rage and it's righteousness executing justice. Remember that. It's God's righteous wrath. And so um, who is the question? Who can live with this consuming fire? Jesus. Somebody that is not contradictory to God's perfect righteousness. We're all in trouble. We're all hopeless. We're all helpless. We're all headed to consuming fire because righteousness must execute wrath through justice. But no, we won't because of, as you've read the rest of the story, you know that Jesus took the brunt of God's wrath on sin for us. That's the gospel. In verse 15 of Isaiah 33, the answer to the question who can walk um, with, the right, with, with the consuming fire? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity, who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so they hold no bribe, who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. You hear the poet? You hear what he's doing? 
In Isaiah 33, verse 15, where we're studying, he says he walks. He says he speaks, rejects and unjust gain, shakes his hands so they hold no bribe. He's righteous in his actions. He stops his ears. He, he shuts his eyes. It's, it's the poet going through the whole person and saying the wickedness of this world doesn't touch him. He's not interested in it. He's seeking righteousness and righteous in his acts. And that's the issue. He who walks righteously speaks appropriate to righteousness and sincerity. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. The people that are righteous is what he's saying. And so all of us, well, we're all disqualified. You could, you could have quoted this in the middle of Romans 2 and 3. And uh, nobody does. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have turned away. Which you've turned aside. And which we've each turned aside. And so some Christians think that uh, they've rightly read Romans 7. I can't do the things I want to do because I'm struggling with my sin nature. And so I do the things I don't want to do. And, and uh, who will save me from this body of sin? That's talking about you and me now. That's not before. That's talking about the struggle we have against self-righteousness or gossip or bitterness or sexual uh, misaligned sexual attractions not toward a spouse or, or some other pattern of sin that your sin nature comes calling. And so some people think based on that idea and things like this and Romans 2 and other things, well, I, I guess we're just all going to have to dither and wallow in sin. But the New Testament is written to Christians to tell us no. We don't walk in sin. We don't walk after the flesh. We walk after the Spirit in Romans 8 and elsewhere. And so tonight I want to answer a question once asked of me. I don't know if I'll satisfactorily answer it, but I think it's a really important question to answer. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What is, what is that? Well, the answer is in your sinful state without uh, yet being resurrected, because of the presence of the sanctifying Spirit of God in you, you can walk righteously in this life. You can bring forth the fruits of righteousness that the Holy Spirit bears in you. You can walk in a manner worthy of your calling by God's grace and the power of God's Spirit and in no other power. My summary answer to the question, what is the filling of the Spirit, is it is the operational spiritual power for you to walk in a life that pleases God. It is the divine enablement for us to do the works and say the words that are pleasing to God in our lives. And I believe there is no righteous act or righteous word that we'll say or do that will not be the product or the fruit of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. In other words, I believe that the Ephesians 5, 18, uh, plerao, filling of the Spirit that we're commanded to enjoy, is a constant responsibility for us is a constant designed to be a constant effect of the holy spirit in your spiritual life so let's ask a theological question see if we can get a theological answer out of the word of god what is the holy spirit like what's the holy spirit like by just out of curiosity anybody know why i put a sailboat let's tilt it over in the image besides that i like the color blue of its various shades i know why i put it because you've got wind and maybe you know that in Hebrew, the word spirit is ruach. Ruach. That's almost like when a person from Massachusetts says it's R-A-W outside. They say it's ruach. Uh, ruach. <laughs> it's ruach outside. Ruach is the word, R-U-A-H. 
H for the spirit. But in Hebrew, it also means wind. The word could also be used to refer to wind or to somebody's breath or, or to air. And this is true also in the New Testament. The word in the New Testament, anybody know what the word, does anyone know for the pneuma, okay? P-N-E-U-M-A is the word for spirit in the New Testament, where we get the word pneumatic for our tires filled with air, right? Not solid core tires that don't have pneuma in them, but pneumatic tires that have air inside. The word pneuma means air or spirit or breath or wind or worldview or personal being that is spiritual in nature. You have evil spirits. You have evil pneuma. You have God the Spirit, the pneuma of God. You have, you even have the, the Lord of this, uh, the, the, the prince of the Spirit that now uh, is in the sons of disobedience in Ephesians 2.2. 2. That's not talking about that every unbeliever has, the, has a demon. That's saying that every unbeliever has a worldview, has, a, has an attitude, a, a, a general uh, approach to life that is in rejection of God. That's the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. It's a big, big word, lots of possibilities, and it often refers to God the Holy Spirit. So one thing we have to say on the outset is sometimes there's going to be an argument between Bible interpreters of whether the word pneuma in the New Testament or ruach in the Old Testament is even talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you know if it's the Holy Spirit? Well, in your Bible, the English translators put a capital S. So you have capital S, that means that it must be the Holy Spirit. And you'd be surprised how many times your understanding of a, of, of a concept about the Holy Spirit is determined by a translator put a capital S for spirit. And they usually, almost always, I agree with them when they do that. that that's probably right, the, when I, the, my, the way I understand it. And um, I hope you can say the same. But I put the sailboat on the screen. Because one thing is very clear in the scriptures. I found, I think, one place in Acts where, I believe it's in um, chapter 13, when the Holy Spirit is said to have said. The Holy Spirit almost, I can't say never, but almost never speaks. You never hear the Spirit's voice. Do you ever hear the Father's voice? I've heard once said that the only revealed member of the Trinity is the second person. Uh-uh. Daniel 7, the ancient of days is not God the Son, it's God the Father. He's God the Father. Now, where do we hear the Father's voice? When he's talking about his Son. Behold my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He says, he says the same thing. He doesn't have much to say directly, the Father speaking where it's in what, what blue letters? Like what color is the Father's when he speaks, Right? But when he speaks, what, do you know what else he says about the Son? It's pretty, pretty consistent. And at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Peter has hit the diarrhea mouth button. He says, let's, let's put up some tents. Uh, it's great that we're here. And, uh, it's good. And, and, and God shuts it down. God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then what does he say? Listen to him. And I think when the Father said it, he said, listen to him. Like, Peter, that, that, that's not time for you to talk. It's time for you to marvel. And hear from my son. And um, I think that's the way to read Matthew 17. We're getting there. uh, Slowly but surely. But the Spirit, we don't hear him talk very much. Set aside for me Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13. And maybe somewhere else that I haven't noticed. But I've looked. I've been looking. 
It's easy to find where Jesus speaks. How do you know when Jesus is speaking in your, in your Bible? It's in red, if you have a red letter Bible. Of course, the Greek text is not in red. The original isn't in red. You have to, and, and there's a fun thing. If you didn't have a red letter Bible in John 3, the, the great gospel passage, you must be born again. There's a question of where the red letters stop and John starts commenting. Some say that Jesus did not say John 3.16, that John says that on the basis of what Jesus did say before, John 3.15. And others say, no, it's Jesus all the way through to like verse 18 or something. But that's fun. Speaking of John 3, let's go there. Not speaking of the filling ministry of the Spirit, but of the, the regenerating ministry of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has several different ministries. Oh, I know what I want to say. The, the, the essential uh, idea about what the Holy Spirit is like is that he does not uh, show up as a character on the stage, except as by his effects. You don't see him. You see, him, uh, you see manifestations that point to him. Uh, one, how did he show up on the baptism? He descended on the, on the son in the form of a dove. And that's definitely a reference to the Holy Spirit. And most Bible-believing Christians that study this out will go back to Genesis 1-2. And the Spirit of God is hovering or fluttering over the surface of the deep. And so maybe there's this, this hint, connection between the Holy Spirit and Genesis 1. Because he's mentioned there. I once heard someone say, well, there was no Holy Spirit until Jesus was glorified. Because they misread uh, John 7, 28. But the, Holy, the Spirit of God is in Genesis 1-2. He's co-creating with the Father and the Son. Well, nevertheless, the point is that he's behind the scenes. He's, he is the energy. He, I should say he, he is not the energy. He supplies by his, uh, apparently his mission, his responsibility within the triune God is to bring the energy, the power, the capability for God's people uh, to do the things that God wants them to do. And that's one thing you see across the ages, whether it's the Old or New Testament, the Spirit enables uh, the people of God to do the things that God wants them to do. And we have a new arrangement because every believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit in the age in which we live. In the Old Testament, if you study it out, just a few, just a handful of people are said to have been uh, broken forth upon or, uh, um, or uh, indwelt or clothed. There are several different verbs for the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament saying we, we all put under the word endowment. He uh, clothed them or empowered them for special things. Did you know Saul the king was empowered by the Holy Spirit? And that's a different type of ministry than what he's doing with us. Do you know what, Paul, you know what Saul was able to do with the power of the Holy Spirit? He had some, a special ability that God gave him because we've read the judges. Samson had the Holy Spirit. And, and, the, and other judges had the Holy Spirit. But, but what was this ministry about? Saul could muster the army. He was powerfully capable, in, empowered by the Spirit of God, to get the armies of Israel together to go to war. Apparently, if you, if you study that out, that seems to be what he's able to do because he has the Spirit. Uh, at least that. At, at least that. Samson, he's not really mustering an army. He is the army. And he's really not thinking he's on a battle campaign. He thinks he's having a soap opera. He's, ha he's, he's bringing revenge on his enemies and killing them in, by the army load <laughs> by himself in the power of the Spirit. 
Nevertheless, the, the work of the Spirit is a behind-the-scenes, invisible thing. And Jesus describes it, uh, and those born again because of the work of the Spirit in them. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And I think he's right in verse 6 of John 3 to say the Holy Spirit. They, they, see, they did it to us. They gave us a capital S. And so we think, yep, that's the Holy Spirit probably. The, to be born again is to be born of the Spirit, to be born uh, from above. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again, Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And yet that's a challenging question because he says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. But think about it. We are not the wind, right? But the effect of the Spirit is invisible. I mean, the Spirit himself is invisible, but the effect that he has in the new birth is uh, a real effect, and it's like the wind. And that's, that's the picture of something propelled by wind, that he's, he's very active. Now, I don't want to do a comprehensive study. Well, actually, I do want to, but tonight we can't do a comprehensive study on the person of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, because... Um, uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful study. But I do want to summarize something for you. When we ask what the Holy Spirit's like, he's not an it. He's not an it. Use personal pronouns that are masculine in the New Testament, even though uh, in, the, in Hebrew, ruach is a feminine noun. Masculine pronouns for the Holy Spirit. Never an it, never a she. It's a he. That, that's what it says. How that works, that's, that's gender in language. I don't begin to understand about Father, Son, and Spirit, and that question of maleness and femaleness. That, but that's the language the Bible uses. So that's what we'll, we'll say, God, the Holy Spirit, we'll say He. Another thing uh, that's very clear is that uh, the third person of the Trinity is a person. And the way you develop that is you watch how He functions, and He does the types of things persons do. You know, um, a car wreck is not a person, but it can teach you a lesson. But a teacher is a person who can teach you a lesson. And the kind of teacher the Holy Spirit is, is not like the car wreck. He's the kind of teacher that's actually a teacher that teaches content and material. And so he does, he does things like he teaches. He equips. He does the kinds of things that persons do. Uh, he is of the same essence as God, the Father and the Son. And I didn't just say Identical essence like you have three beings with the same equal powers that's tritheism y'all we don't believe that we believe in one god who exists in three persons the oneness is essence language the threeness is person language and if you put essence into persons where the persons have the same or identical or equal essence you end up with tritheism and we've there's a lot of theology for you to read to un unwind that if you want to. It's called church history. But we don't believe in tritheism. That's polytheism. We believe in one God, one essence, one being who exists as three persons in three persons. And so three eternally coexistent, mutually indwelling persons. And uh, the, the person of the Holy Spirit is so important and so honored and exalted by the Father and the Son that Jesus lays down the Father's agenda and policy in Matthew chapter 12, when they say that he's, that when, the, when the, the religious crowd accused Jesus of casting out demons in the power of, of Beelzebub, by, of Satan, 
Jesus says, this will not be forgiven. The blasphemy of me or my father will be, but this will not be forgiven you, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is the one empowering him to do the works. And that power is the power of God. The Holy Spirit is of the same essence as the Father, and that means that he is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is eternal. He is all the things that God is. And we should think about that. You should think of the third person, the Holy Spirit of God, as co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential with the Father and the Son. And that means that if he lives in you, to empower, and that's the language, to empower you to do the things that God wants you to do. Think about what that means, about your power, about what's in you. This means that Jesus said, there are going to be greater works than these that you'll do to the disciples. Greater, you'll say to this mountain, move and it'll move. What, huh? Anything that God wants you to do, Ephesians 2, 10 style, anything that God prepared beforehand for you to walk in, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you are omnipotent in the sense that it's his power through you to do it. You and the Spirit of God can do absolutely what God wants you to do. And there should be great courage, great confidence. That's Ephesians 1, uh, 17 stuff, that we would know the power of God toward us who believe. All right. Well, let's do some stories. The nature of the Holy Spirit's various ministries. Will you turn with me? We could, we could go to Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit shows up and the church has its birthday. And he, he manifests himself as tongues of fire above the disciples in the upper room. And then they are speaking with foreign tongues. In that story, I'm not going to read it with you. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. But in that story, think about it. The Holy Spirit announces his presence not with I'm here, but with what the disciples are saying. And I think this is one of the central issues about the ministries of the Spirit. It's, it's consistent across the entire New Testament. And watch this, and, and largely the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit inspired every word of Scripture according to uh, 2 Peter 1. The Holy Spirit led them along to write what he wanted them to write. That means that there's communication coming out of the prophets of the Old Testament and the prophets and apostles of the New Testament. Communication coming through their pen that the Spirit of God is empowering them to give. Communication. When the Holy Spirit shows up, he undoes Babel in a sense in, in, in uh, Acts 2 with the upper room, and they're speaking foreign languages and glorifying God in all these Gentile languages. They're not ever speaking gibberish. The gift of tongues I will maintain until the Lord tells me face-to-face otherwise. The gift of tongues has never been ba-ba-ka-ka-ka-ka. It's never been gibberish. It was a language. You were speaking a Gentile language. They're there for the Feast of Pentecost, and they're all the Gentile diaspora Jews, the Jews with Gentile languages are in Jerusalem, and they're all hearing in the language they've grown up with in the diaspora. They're hearing God being praised in these Gentile languages. And so this notice the Spirit of God is here, and the way he announces is through the, the gift of languages. They're speaking. And speech ends up being what the whole Bible is. It's God talking to us, and the Holy Spirit carried the prophets along. It's that the effect of the Spirit will be the revelation of God in the speech, and not always revelation, sometimes just empowerment to do the work of God in speech. Let's talk about the nature of the Spirit's ministry starting in Acts. Oh, I'm sorry. I I wanted to list some of these things. I've already listed them, but we we can kind of go through this. The Holy Spirit is invisible. He's never bodily described. You have bodily descriptions of both the Father and the Son. 
You just do. You have bodily descriptions. I didn't say the Father has a physical body like Jesus in the incarnation. I don't really understand metaphysically what we're seeing in, in, in Daniel 7. I like to say that because I don't think anybody does. But I know what Daniel 7 says, and I believe what it says. That Daniel saw one like a son of man coming in the clouds, and it was presented before the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is described as a human form on a throne with, white glow, with woolly white hair and burning eyes, and, and glorious and exalted. And the Son of Man is the Son. The Jesus kept calling himself, I'm the Son of Man. And the Ancient of Days is God the Father. And that's a portrayal of a throne room scene. We have uh, Isaiah 6 with the Lord exalted on his throne. You have um, uh, hints, and we're going to see what we need to see when it's time. But and I get, I get curious like everyone else, and I think that the Bible needs to be exhausted for what it tells you and re- respected when it doesn't. But the Spirit is never described, as, as far as I know, bodily, except in the, the picture, the image of the dove, but he's not a dove. But he's represented uh, by this dove image. And so it's very clear he's invisible. I think that's why Jesus uses wind language to say that you see his effects, the Holy Spirit is called in part the Holy Spirit. Of course, he's holy. He's God. But I think partly what the holiness of the Spirit refers to is his holy or sanctifying work with God's people. He's sanctify and holy are the same word. Holify, sanctify. Um, and in both in Greek and Hebrew, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, this idea of being holy or set apart. Everybody feeling really holy tonight? Look at you. You're in uncomfortable New England pews. Uh, we are in a church building that's old, and uh, they've been preaching the gospel. Feel pretty holy, right, because you're in this space. No, it doesn't mean a feeling. It doesn't mean you're in a certain kind of building. What is holy? Holy, it means set apart. You, hopefully, you know that. And it means that throughout the Bible. And um, I once saw one of my favorite theologians in his writing said that the Holy Spirit uh, is in, indwells us for a, a, for a sanctified purpose. Or he sets us apart for a sanctified purpose or for a holy purpose. And it's like he sets us apart for a set-apart purpose. Um, we're just trying to, we're trying to get at this idea um, of God and what it's like for God to be glorious and righteous and holy. See, we said the word holy. It means different. It means distinct. What's the sense in which God the Holy Spirit or God the Father, that God is separate from us or holy compared to us or to creation? Well, in one sense, it has to be moral. There has to be the righteousness of God that is the coin of the realm. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, what's going to happen to them? They'll be filled. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus promises you'll be filled. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So the Holy Spirit sets us apart. And Jesus said in John 3, he regenerates us. So the beginning of this work is our new birth and the life God gives us. He imparts his life to us. But there's a a positional setting us apart to God that happens when we first trust in Christ. We call it positional sanctification. But then the Spirit works in us through our entire lives and ultimately will be glorified. And that process of three-phase sanctification Initial positional sanctification, I'm in Christ by the baptism of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in me to raise me to more, more and more to the character of Christ, and then my glorification. This is all sanctification, all this process, of which, uh, which is also described in various phases of salvation. 
And it begins with simple childlike faith in God's grace, His sanctifying grace. But the Spirit of God is very uh, active in these ministries. Apparently, the Spirit glorifies God. He does this uh, through the Son. The Son's works are proclaiming that the kingdom is here. It's the kingdom of God. And Jesus teaches the disciples, for example, to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. The whole thing in Jesus' agenda is to bring glory to his Father. And so the works that Jesus does in the power of the Spirit are glorifying of the Father and therefore of the Son. And so this is something that is always on the Spirit's agenda. It's always something that he's doing. And this is really important. The Holy Spirit's work is not evident in the feeling of it necessarily. We want to get that feeling. Like it's, mm. I just want to know that the Spirit is working, right? But the way the Bible describes this is more about the effects than the feeling that you get. I mean, this, is, this is so great. We want to worship God in our culture. We're so selfish and so, um, what are synonyms for selfish? Narcissistic, egotistical, uh, egocentric, egomaniacal. Any other selfish synonyms? I love these. These are good good synonyms to, to kind of describe us. We want it to be how we feel about God, and that's worship. I feel. And of course, if you aren't having rejoicing in your salvation feelings of, 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 of glory and joy in your God, then you're, that's bad. It's really not, you're, it's, that's horrible. You're supposed to be rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory, but that's not an end in itself, and we feel like that's the goal because we're hedonists, and so we'll, we'll, we'll try to play Christian hedonist. And that's one of the great sanctification uh, snafus in our culture. One of the great m m mistakes we make is that we think it's about how we feel. Our feelings are part of what it's about. It's not about how we feel. Our feelings are, you see what I mean? But the, but the one I want to get to is, the Holy Spirit is not known for how you feel, but how you talk. He's not known for, how was Jesus' day going? He was, just had a pep in his step. He must have been the Holy Spirit. It was that the lepers were cleansed and the demons were cast out. The effects. The Spirit of God is strutting, in, if you will, in the life of Jesus as he's doing these miracles. And it's glorious to the Father. And it's, I'm sure, they're wonderful feelings, but it's not about the feelings as you read the Gospels. And especially the Spirit of God and His effects are very focused on speech. Now, I know what you're thinking. Actually, I have no idea what you're thinking. What are you thinking? No, that... I, <laughs> Sometimes we get kind of Jesus take the wheelie about this and kind of feel like, well, if I'm going to say something for God, then the Spirit's just going to have to use me like a puppet and I'll just, we want it to be direct action that way. And it almost never is. The pagans have this. The, the, the pagans all through world history have had oracles that the demons spoke through them. We see the demons speaking through um, the, the humans in the stories in the Gospels. We just had the Gerasene, Gerasene uh, Gadarene demoniac in, in Matthew 8, remember? So, I mean, they, we do see the legion demons are speaking, right? But the person is said to be speaking. That's really not how it works with the Spirit of God. 
because inside you there is this immaterial you and in somehow there's this mysterious connection between the immaterial you and the physical you and your speech happens when the inner you the heart of you with its intentions and desires and decisions actuates the physical you your brain to uh, start working your vocal cords and your and your lungs and your air and everything and you don't think about it but you do think what you're going to say and then you use your equipment and say it right unless something's gone wrong you some speech pathology and some help but without thinking much the immaterial you comes up with an idea and a decision and then starts operating the physical you the brain which then starts on the vocal cords and the breath and, and that's how you speak and I don't think that there is any work of the Spirit through you that doesn't operate within that process. Within your immaterial you, operating the physical you, I, I think it's the Spirit of God working within the immaterial you. And it's still your decision. And it's still you. And I think it's a partnership. I think it's an indwelling work of the Spirit to enable us in a way that you really can't touch. And we want to touch it. It's like, it's like, it's like an itch in the back of my brain that I can't get to. I want to see him. I want to see his works. I want to divide when I said this thing that glorified God from when I said this thing that glorified God. This one was the Spirit and this one was just me. But I don't think that's how this works. I think that the inner you, the heart of man indwelt by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit with the Word of Christ is now characterized supernaturally by the things of God so that they come out in what you think and say and do. And it's really you thinking and saying them, but the Spirit is enabling you to do it. And so I don't think that the Bible ever draws a line. I don't think you can get a scalpel or a laser, a laser scalpel that would ever be able to penetrate into where you start and the Holy Spirit stops or, or, or the other way around. It's you with the Spirit empowering you. And that's why you're responsible for your choices. And that's why the Spirit, God is working in us. us. My favorite verse on this is Philippians 2.13. He's working in us both to will and to do or work for His pleasure. God's working in you. And don't worry about, well, how's He doing it? Through the Word. How does He do that? Don't worry about it. He's doing it. That's, that's, what, that's the idea. So we're going to see the effects, especially in speech. So let's go for Acts 6. That's one of my favorite places that talks about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 6, we don't ever think of going there for the filling of the Spirit. Let's talk about that in Acts 6. What's going on in Acts 6? Y'all know? Well, the women are having problems. Women are very rarely the cause of any problems, except in Genesis 3 and everywhere else. And No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm teasing. Uh, we're, we're all at, at, at uh, fault for our choices. And, um, and I just want to say that the kings are always, we are always told who their mothers are uh, before we hear whether they've walked with the Lord or not and the kings. But uh, women are so important. But this is not about women as much as uh, the Hellenistic uh, widows are not being cared for by the Jewish. So it's really not about the boys and girls issue as the Jews that are of Judea versus the Jews of the Greek world. And so the Hellenistic widows are being overlooked in the giving of alms and the care for them. We're supposed to take care of widows and orphans. And so the gospel is being uh, contradicted. The grace of God is being uh, lied about in the actions of these Christians. And so there's a, there's a Holy Spirit sort of deficiency. We're not seeing his effects of the fruit of the Spirit is love in how the Hellenistic widows are being ignored. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose 
on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. What in the world? Why would they do that? They're racists. But that's okay. Everybody is. Everybody struggles with this. Take care of your own. Disregard the other. We're all having problems. I shouldn't say they're racists, but there is this cultural difference, and so we're going to take care of the locals and disregard the outsiders. Well, this is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. So what do you do? Well, let's get some help. Let's, let's empower some people with authority, turns out, to manage these things. Now, this is the passage that's the origin of the deaconate. Deacons are introduced here. I've heard it taught that deacons have no power because the word means servant and that the power comes in with the elders. Elders have power, but deacons have no authority. And that would be a contradiction of Scripture if you take Acts 6 as the origin of the deaconate, which it is. The, the same people that say deacons have no authority are the same people that say Acts 6 is not the origin of the deacons. But then I really wonder why we have deacons if we didn't get an Acts 6. So, um, so that's enough footnoting. Let's read it. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. That is an understatement, isn't it? He's saying, they're saying, probably Peter or James, maybe James, they're saying we should not be taking care of this administrative task, but we're going to have to come out of our prayer time and come and make sure that these Hellenistic widows are getting their care. They're getting cared for which is very frustrating in pastoral ministry when you feel that you have to do something like this. But they're not going to stop their work. They're going to get other people to share the load. This is the nature of ministry in the gospel. You don't do it all yourself. You get other people to help you do it. And notice that the elders, these 12, are going to direct what is the mission, and then they're going to let the deacons take the mission and make decisions and authority over the, over the situation. Therefore, here's the filling of the Spirit part. Brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Boy, what a, what a resume. Full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Let me ask you a question. How would the brethren know which men to select that are full of the Spirit? How would you know? I promise it is not that they're the biggest tongue speakers in the group. Filling of the Spirit has been equated in charismatic circles with the speaking of tongues or in the Bible languages, but, but that's not what it means. It doesn't mean you speak in tongues. What this means is that the people can know this man is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. This man has the, has the Spirit of God. This man is, is it's, remember I told you he's known by his effects, and we see the effects. We need these kind of maturing believers to put in charge of this task. Do y'all see that in verse 3 where it says, whom we may put in charge? What do you think people in charge do? Let me ask you a question. Do people in charge only take orders or do they also make decisions? So it's like these guys have authority to make decisions. Just point that out as we think about what deacons are in the Bible. Therefore, brethren, select from among you these seven men. So in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer to the ministry of the word. So we have to divide the task. There's only so much time. And these deacons in their, these servants, in their efforts are going to be focused more with their time on the administrative. Well, what's interesting is who they call and what these men do when you keep reading in Acts. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man 
full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Man, they had to even get somebody that wasn't even born Jewish. He's a proselyte. Remember, we haven't got to Acts chapter 9. Kill Peter and eat. Uh, we're still uh, largely Jewish, uh, genetically Jewish as the church, but they even have a proselyte here, uh, kind of as a foreshadowing of what's coming. These they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So even the Levites are becoming believers. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So these guys are not just waiting tables, are they? What are the signs and wonders for? They testify to the gospel. They were, in the first century, designed to testify to the message of the apostles. And so even these men have these powers. But some men from the, what's called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And that launches us in to an entire chapter of the Bible narrated in a, a kind of a reporting fashion of what he said. And in the entire chapter of Acts 7, you have Stephen's magnificent message. Now, the reason I bring this out is we had a little bit of Stephen's signs and wonders. He was performing signs and wonders because the signs and wonders testified to the message. The Bible has been thoroughly authenticated by those that received it, that it is apostolic from the power of Jesus because of the apostolic signs and wonders. They had this power. They could heal. They could work miracles. But in Acts 7, you have the real manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And I say real because of proportion. It's a much greater proportion of God's word that we hear what Stephen says than that he can do wonders and miracles. It's what he says that is Acts chapter 7. And why can he say what he's supposed to say under this pressure and opposition because Jesus promised that the disciples would in Acts 10 or Matthew 10. You don't need to worry what you're going to say. The Spirit will empower you to speak. See, the Holy Spirit's manifestation, I want to say primarily in the New Testament at least, is speech. And so, so Stephen filled with the Spirit. The high priest said, are these things so? And he said, this is chapter 7, verse 1, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So he recounts Israel's history, tells them that they have just killed the Messiah, and it is, his blood is on their hands, but, that they can, but he was raised from the dead, and they stone him to death. Uh, there are 60 verses in Acts chapter 7. The overwhelming majority of this is a quote it's a report of speech, of the speech that Luke makes. It's one of the longest speeches that's recorded in the Bible. Now, here's an interesting question that's fun for you. Does everybody agree that Luke chapter se- or Acts chapter 7, written by Luke, Paul's associate, is the Word of God? It's, it's holy writ. It's Scripture, right? Luke wrote it. He's not an apostle. He'd be a prophet. He'd be a, a, an early church prophet because he's not one of the apostles, but he wrote scripture. Just like Isaiah, he's not an apostle either, but he, was, he wrote scripture, he's a, he's a prophet. These are New Testament prophets, all right. 
So everybody agrees that what Luke writes word for word is the word of God. Word for word. Here's what I believe about what Stephen said on the street there in Jerusalem. I believe that what he said was direct revelation from God by a gift of prophecy. I think Stephen is prophesying. I think he is empowered by the Spirit of God to say what he needs to say, and I think it is God's Word. Now, I think that I am absolutely certain that what Luke writes about what Stephen said, directly quoting him or attempting or, or quoting him in the fashion that's, that you do in a literary quotation like this, Stephen, I mean, Luke is not taking dictation down as, as Stephen quote, spoke. He's not even present. Think about that. Well, the Holy Spirit told Luke exactly what I tried. He did. But what we're saying is that if Luke's quote of Stephen is Scripture, is the Word of God, is revelation from God, I don't think it's a far stretch to say what Stephen said is the Word of God. It's revelation from God. I think he's speaking, in other words, prophetically. I don't think that if you're filled with the Spirit that gives you the power to speak prophetically unless God does that. And I think he did it with Stephen in the first century. But I do think this that your spiritual gifts are expressed best in the power and filling of the Holy Spirit. I also want to point out that one of the most important or the longest sermons of the Bible was delivered by a deacon. That deacon was also killed for his speech. (laughs) He was killed for that long, uh, for that sermon. Um, And it was not a sermon to an affectionate audience that wanted to hear what he had to say. He didn't start off by saying good morning and everybody said, good morning, it's good to be here on a Sunday. We have our deacons in those kinds of sermons. But a lot of interesting things uh, when you observe the text that might not have uh, occurred to you or certainly didn't occur to me. So start, we start thinking about them. What Stephen, who is filled with the Spirit, can do is say these words that are condemning of Israel. In verse 51 of Acts 7, you, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. That's the last words of Stephen before they start to throw rocks. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gashing, I'm sorry, gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a magnificent way to be ushered into the presence of our Savior. By before you get sent, you get to say, hey, I see him from down here. And very soon, Stephen's spirit was up there as his body was destroyed. They cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. Now, why did Stephen say, behold, I see the Son of Man at the right hand standing in glory? Why did he say that? Because it says, it says, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he said, he's saying the things that God is giving him to say. In this case, Uh, The crowd in reaction kills him. Did God cause Stephen's death by enabling him to say this glorious thing that now is edifying us, reminding us of where we're headed, what our life is really about? No, God is not at fault for Stephen's death. The crowds are at fault. And God gets all the credit for the glory 
that he can glorify himself with in the eternal promotion of Stephen, the deacon. Humble man, of very little use to God except in the filling of the Holy Spirit. When they'd driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this against them, he said. Having said this, he fell asleep. I think it's pretty clear that there's a theme that runs through Acts that when you have the spirit, you're enabled to speak. When you have the spirit, you're enabled to speak. What does Peter say before he received the Holy Spirit and when Jesus is being tried? Peter's out with the guys singing uh, four-part harmony out by the trash can. (laughs) He's out by the charcoal fire warming himself. And they say, oh, you're one of those guys from up north. You're a Galilean. We know your voice. You're one of those people with Jesus. I don't know him. Peter's words are coward's words. He was very brave the same night a little earlier. Now he's very cowardly because he's under persecution. Jesus has been seized and uh, there's no Jesus to hide behind. Well, uh, fast forward to uh, when Peter is definitely uh, the little rock, when he's firmed up and solid. And uh, they, we told you not to preach in this name in the temple. But you, you consider among yourselves if it's right for us to obey men or God, is Peter's answer. We're going to keep preaching this name. And, um, and he's strong because he has the Holy Spirit. That's the difference, I think, in the life of Peter. Um, what about Acts 8? How do we have the same story in Acts 8? So there's Paul is introduced. Saul of Tarsus is breathing threats and murder. He was hearty in agreement with Stephen's death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and would put them in prison. I think of Saul as kind of like King Herod killing the babies because he's trying to kill the infant church. That's his goal. In verse 4, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And now you have the story of Philip. Well, the reason I bring up Philip is he's just a deacon. He's just a servant, right? Um, Because he was in that list of the seven. He went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, why can Philip proclaim Christ down in Samaria? Well, because he's filled with the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is in you to produce speech. That's partly what he's going to do, and you see him by his effects. And so the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what uh, was, was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. Many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Wow, these guys are powerful. It was just a deacon. I thought he was supposed to be waiting tables. Well, he's got that covered. He does that too. But this is his mission. And so you have the Ethiopian uh, eunuch that will come up in the story because Stephen is filled with, I'm sorry, Philip is filled with the Spirit to say uh, what he needs to say in reference to Jesus um, uh, regarding Isaiah 53. And um, what, my point, I think, is clearly made. The Holy Spirit has our mouths. The Holy Spirit wants to express the, the things of God through our speech. And this is why as we mature, we ought to have a control on our tongues. And James, the whole tongue, the tongue is a flame of fire passage. 
The more you grow, the more the Spirit is supposed to have the character of Christ formed in you. That's what we're growing into is the character of Jesus. That's why love, the fruit of the Spirit, is said to grow, to increase and abound in you. And therefore, that takes us, of course, to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. Thanks for your your patience. Let me just summarize for you. Maybe we'll get to do this a little bit more. But in Ephesians 5, we're told not to put in something that will influence us with its uh, intoxicating effects. Do not be drunk with wine, for that's a waste. But rather, in contrast, be filled with the Spirit in pneumati, in the Spirit, by means of the Spirit. And we ask that question, what does this mean, be filled with the Spirit? Well, he doesn't say how to be filled with the Spirit here. He just says, do it. I'd like to point out that that command in Ephesians 5.18 is one of the most wonderful commands in the Bible because it's a present active imperative. Excuse me, it's a present passive imperative. It's something that you wouldn't usually command someone in the passive voice. Have, let this be done to you. This is something you're responsible for. It's imperative to you, but it's passive voice. In other words, I guess don't stop it. Let it happen. Let it be. Be filled with the Spirit. I believe the passive imperative in the Greek is telling me this is something God wants to do with you all the time. How do I do it? Terry? No. Uh, Fast? No. Remove the obstacles to this work in you. He's standing by to express himself through you. But he doesn't go for the means by which you get filled with the Spirit. He goes to the effects. In verse 19... When he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Apostle Paul is saying that the result of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to be what you say to each other. Now, y'all watch this. You might not have seen this before. It's my favorite passage to preach. I start uh, <laughs> premarital counseling here because you're going to husbands and wives, right? It starts with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't start with husbands and wives. All right. What does verse 19 say? Be filled with the Spirit with the result that you what? Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. All right, that's the first one. What's the second one? Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Okay, this one's God. I'm talking to God. This one's talking to each other. You watching that so far? What's the third one in verse 20? With the result that you are always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Who do you give thanks to? The Father, in whose name, in the Son's name, doesn't mean the Father is named the Son. That's not what it means. It means that you're going to the Father with the credentials of the Son. I'm here in His name, O Father, because He's my Savior and you've told me to. I got His card to get me into the penthouse uh, elevator button so I can go all the way up to you because I'm in the name of the Son coming to you, O Father. That's the idea. So I'm speaking to one another in what? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I'm singing and making melody in my heart to the Lord. I'm giving thanks at all times for all things to who? The Father in the name of the Son. That's to God or man? God. And what's the fourth one in verse 21? Being subject one to another in the fear of Christ. That's people. You see the Hebraic chiasm? A, B, B, A. How you take care of people, how you take care of God. How you take care of God, how you take care of people. But it's all it all begins with speech, three, three of the four, and you could say, I can submit to one another in how I speak. Can't we? Can't we submit to one another and consider each other's needs in how we speak? 
this is the result, participles, of the filling of the Spirit. And we launch from that submission, one to another. Not in authority. That doesn't mean that you're under someone's authority. It means that you're placing your desires or needs or preferences under the needs of the other. You're putting yourself under in the sense of their needs. And then we have the authority establishment in uh, wives, husbands, um, children, parents, slaves, masters. It's always the lower authority than the higher authority in the household all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. All governed by be filled with the Spirit. All because of these result participles of how you're communicating. What's the filling of the Spirit like? Well, let's start with getting enough of God's Word so I can sing it to one another, so we can talk about it to one another. Let's get in God's Word enough so that I can uh, make melody in my heart to the Lord and sing to Him because I have something to sing to Him about. Let's get into God's Word enough from the Spirit of God working in me so that I can be thankful for all things. Do I even know what to be thankful for? He's not telling you to be thankful you stubbed your toe. He's talking about the guaranteed resurrection and all the wonderful blessings of chapter 1 that he, he went over in Ephesians 1. And Colossians 3 is a truncated restatement of the same idea. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with almost identical results, the speaking results, teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How you talk to one another, how you talk to God, that's what the filling of the Spirit looks like. Now, can you fake it? Oh, brother, it's good to be here. Let's talk about Psalm 23. And you aren't walking by the Spirit. You're just as sinful or rebellious or whatever it is. That's possible. It's possible. But it's also described here as what the Spirit would do in us. And it should be consistent. It should be constant. So let's ask for it. Father, thank you for your time that you've given us to think through what you want to do with us. We've read the wonders of the coming Messiah and his kingdom empowered by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we have the Holy Spirit now. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we are rich, empowered, capitalized beyond our imaginations. Father, we're saying words and we confess to you we cannot fully understand the import of these words. But the third person of the Trinity lives in us and we're commanded to be filled by him. And we're not commanded to be filled by him once in a while, but all the time. Father, help us be mindful of this wonderful capitalization that as we grow in Christ, we should have a watch on our tongues. We should be saying what is glorifying and praising to you toward one another and to you. Father, let us truly enjoy spiritual life as we see these effects, as we walk in submission, walk with you, walk uh, abiding in your son. In Christ's name we pray, amen.